Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. going to begin reading in verse 12 and down through the end of the chapter here as we see the apostles and the disciples following the ascension of Christ into heaven prepare and wait for Pentecost, wait for the coming of the Spirit. Acts 1 verse 12 says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is Peter and John, and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakeldama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. Title of the message is The Waiting Witnesses. The Waiting Witnesses. Jesus had said in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And they are witnesses. He said, you will be my witnesses. But he told them to wait. That direction to wait, you could see back in verse 4 when he says, gathering them together. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. What did the Father promise? Which, he says, you have heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So they are witnesses. They will be witnesses. They are waiting. And in their waiting, what are they doing? This is not just sitting as we might sit in a waiting room. 
and do nothing or just sit there and read something. They're waiting, but in the, the sense of waiting upon God for God to act. This community of believers made up of the apostles, as we see in this passage, as well as the women who were there at the cross and likely followed Jesus along with Mary, verse 14, and his brothers. The number totals 120, according to verse 15. They're all waiting and anticipating the work of God. And God is at work. He has, of course, sent his son into the world. His son has come. He has lived a sinless life. He's done all of his miracles. He's proclaimed the word of God. He's taught his disciples. His teaching has been made known. But, of course, he was arrested and then crucified, but then rose again. And as he rose again, the anticipation that he gave to his disciples was that God was still at work. God was going to do something else in the history of salvation in terms of God's plan. One author, as he spoke about what is taking place here and acknowledging what's taking place in this chapter, just makes the point that what God is doing and what he is planning to do is not halted by Judas's disobedience. Judas had apostatized. He had turned away from the truth, but that doesn't stop the work of God. Obviously, as Judas did what he did and betrayed Jesus, we understand that God was even sovereign over that and accomplished his will in spite of it. And we understand also that Jesus chose Judas as one of the apostles, but this author I think rightly points out that Jesus was not mistaken when he chose Judas. In the overall plan of God, there was one whose heart would turn and who would turn away and actually betray and become, as this passage says, becomes a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Jesus was not mistaken. And these leaders that Christ had chosen the 12 apostles, now 11, that he chose for ministry earlier, their life is now being defined even further in terms of their waiting here at Jerusalem and waiting for God to unfold his plan. You think about that. When the disciples followed Jesus, they took up their cross to follow him, and their will was subject to the will of the Savior. That's what a disciple does. They take up their cross and they deny themselves and they follow after Christ. Did the disciples know, did the apostles know what that would mean? Well, he did say, take up a cross. The expectation was suffering. And while they suffered in some ways during his earthly life before he ascended into heaven, they certainly would suffer more some of them even found here in the book of Acts, suffering to the point of martyrdom. But that's the path of a disciple, somebody who follows Christ, denies themselves, and however the Lord directs, whatever the Lord commands, that's what's defining. You have to kind of wonder what's going on in the lives of the apostles. As they're mentioned here, Peter, John, James, Andrew, so forth. 
they, of course, had been at Jerusalem for the Passover with Jesus. They had seen the events unfold. They knew that Jesus had been crucified, but then had risen again. But they also knew that Jerusalem was not necessarily the most friendly place. And so naturally, I think you could say, would they have wanted to leave? I think they would have. Do you want to stay in a place where your life could be in danger? Well, Jesus said, wait there. That was his command, and they obeyed. Verse 4, he tells them to wait at Jerusalem, but now after ascending into heaven, verses 9 through 11, it says, verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. They didn't go back to Galilee. They didn't go back to Bethany. They didn't go to other places that they could have been, which would have been, you might say, more covert. Instead, they go, and you notice it says in verse 13, it says they went to the upper room where they were staying. I don't know that it's absolutely provable that this is the very same upper room, although it uh, stands to reason that if Jesus had arranged this place and it was large enough for them to celebrate the Passover. Jesus even said it's a large room that could have handled certainly the ones that are mentioned in verses 12 through 14. It also could have held, it seems, the larger group, although we know the disciples were in other places. They weren't constantly in this upper room. It wasn't as if this is a 24-7 thing, but this is where they are. Jesus is giving them direction And they're following it. They're being obedient. They're waiting in the place that he said in anticipation for the coming of the Spirit. And we're told not just of their obedience here, but we're told who they are. This is the first time in the book of Acts that Luke is actually specifying who the apostles are. I think we could read through the book of Luke or the gospel of Luke and see the same thing in Uh, Luke's record, because he names them. He names all of them, including the one that's missing from our list. Did you notice that in the list? It's Peter and John, verse 13, James and Andrew. Peter first, John and James, also prominent apostles who are later named in the book. But then there's Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and who are we missing? But who is also mentioned in the chapter? Of course, it's Judas Iscariot. Is there a purpose to why Luke names them? Well, for the reader, you might assume that understanding based upon somebody who's read through the gospel, but if you hadn't, Luke is specifying now so that we understand who these people are. They're the same ones that Jesus chose, and now they're the ones who are going to stand as his representatives to Israel to be those who would publicly proclaim the resurrection. Um, There may be different reasons as you think about the naming of these apostles, but I think In the very least, it's to show that there's a continuity between the apostleship that is named back there when Jesus originally chose the 12 apostles and this group. There's not a changing. There's not an alteration. There's not a switching in and out. These are those who are specifically chosen by Christ. 
His purpose was to send them out as official representatives. There were 12 of them originally. Now there's only 11. And that is going to be remedied later in this chapter. But these 11, these same ones, even Thomas, we understand from the Gospels that there was some question about Thomas because he had not been among them. But to be certain, as Luke presents this story, the story of the Acts of the Apostles, yes, Thomas is among them. He's among those who saw the ascension. He's among those who come back to Jerusalem. He's among those who, is, uh, who are waiting and awaiting the coming of the Spirit. And what are they doing? Look at verse 14. These 11, it says, all with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Although they are witnesses, although that's God's purpose for them, they are spending their time occupying themselves, not with that yet, but in prayer. They're unified. And we understand that these 11 were accompanied by, notice what it says, the women. Some would take that as the wives of the apostles. And we know from some texts, Peter had a mother-in-law. He certainly had a wife. Then uh, it's possible, certainly, that the others did as well, but we're not told about that. But I think when he mentions here the women, there's a broader group of disciples, and the women reflect some of those disciples who followed Jesus through his ministry and supported him. Mary, of course, his mother was among those at times, but there are some who are mentioned in the uh, the book of uh, Luke, the gospel of Luke, as those who stood by the cross. It just says the women who accompanied Jesus from Galilee were standing by the cross watching and observing what was taking place. So it's possible that as Luke is writing here, he's alluding to that same group of women. What we find here is that along with these apostles, there are disciples, women who are participating in these meetings as they are praying. And we find not only the women there, but Mary, the mother of Jesus there. And also, I think this is a surprising development as we understand the Gospels, Jesus' own brothers. Why do I say that's a surprising development? Well, John chapter 7 tells us that they were not believing on him. They did not understand or know or believe that he was the Messiah. And I think there's actually encouragement in the fact that they are here. But what we're talking about is this group of disciples and apostles. Apostles is that narrow group Jesus chose from among the 70. He chose 12. One of them is no longer an apostle. He has died by now. We know that from the Gospels. We see that here. But it's that group that's here and there. Notice this, verse 14. These all with one mind. They are united in their thinking. They are united in their heart, in their actions here. They're of one mind about who Jesus is. They're of one mind about what they were supposed to do in anticipating the Spirit. 
And this is a beautiful picture of God's people when they are united together, intent on one purpose, and that is obeying their risen Lord. We see that in other times in the book of Acts. Sometimes you see the phrase, with one accord. The disciples are doing what they're doing and with one accord. You see that in Acts chapter 4, as the disciples are with one accord, lifting up their voice to God in prayer. In Acts chapter 15, they're united in their opposition to false teaching and the letter that they send with the leadership of the apostles and James and the church of Jerusalem there. They were one-minded in that action to communicate the truth of the gospel. Obviously, this idea of being of one mind can be a bad thing if it's a bad thing in view. It was the Sanhedrin that had one mind about Stephen as they rushed upon him and took his life. But here they are of one mind and they're devoting themselves to prayer. And isn't that a wonderful thing when God's people endeavor to be unified? Not just in the same building, but unified in terms of their purpose and the way that they're thinking. There's a single-minded purpose that they all have together. That's what Paul encouraged the Colossians about, that when he was gone and was absent, he wanted them single-minded, intent on one purpose, holding forth the gospel, preaching the gospel. When he said to the Philippians, Paul said, therefore, if there is any encouragement of Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, there's lots of things that people can be divided about, but God's people ought to be united around the most important things. And of course, here it's united in their obedience to Christ and they're praying for and anticipating the coming of the Spirit. That gives, according to Philippians chapter 2, joy to the one who is leading them. Paul said, make my joy complete. And he's saying this to the Philippians, a church that he'd ministered to. So if we just take that principle and think about this group of believers who had seen the risen Christ ascend to heaven, he said, wait at Jerusalem, and here they are waiting, united, praying together. That's just a beautiful sight. That's God's people together. Not everyone intent on their own purpose, everyone intent on one purpose, and that's God's purpose. And they're devoting themselves to prayer. Notice the language there. It says they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. This is used a number of times in the book of Acts, Acts 1 here, but also twice in chapter 2, speaking of the unity of the church and their devotion to the apostles' teaching or their devotion to their fellowship with one another. The apostles said in Acts chapter 6 that they needed to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. But here it's the apostles and these disciples, the women, Mary, Jesus' brothers, that are devoting themselves to prayer, to petitioning God, to asking God, to praising God. I think as you look at 
what they were doing during this time. You could say it's both asking, but also praising God. Turn over, if you would, to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, I said the disciples weren't always in this one place, that sometimes they were elsewhere. Luke tells us in his detail that he concludes about the ascension at the end of the gospel of Luke, Luke 24, verse 50, it says, he led them out as far as Bethany and he lifted them up, excuse me, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Well, that reflects on what's taking place in their lives during this time emotionally. It actually informs us of what's taking place in this prayer time there in Jerusalem. It says here they're continually in the temple praising God, but along with that, they return to Jerusalem with joy. Joy that Christ had risen. Joy now that he's ascended into heaven. Joyful expectation that the next work in God's plan is about to take place. He's about to pour out the Spirit from on high. There's something that's going to take place in Jerusalem that's going to cause them great joy. So are they praising God? I think it's right to think in terms of them giving praise to God and thanks to God for sending the Messiah, the one they've come to understand is truly God's Son who's come. They've seen his earthly ministry, they've heard his teaching, they've seen his miracles, they've seen his crucifixion, but then his resurrection, now his ascension, and now God is about to do something else, and there's just a joy to know that God is at work, and that they themselves, of course the apostles, had been privy to the resurrected Lord. Praise the Lord, he is risen. Praise the Lord, he is ascended. Praise the Lord, he's going to send the Spirit, and if he's going to send the Spirit, That's his promise. Lord, would you send your spirit in keeping with what you've said? So there's also petition. They're anticipating the fulfillment of the promises of Jesus that he mentioned there in Acts chapter 1. But again, we looked at John 14 through 16, where Jesus gives specifics about what the spirit was going to come and do. And it is interesting, if you turn back to Acts chapter 1, that prayer, prayer of the church, sometimes just the prayer of individuals, I'll put it this way, prayer is where the action is. Prayer is where the action is. It's not to say that by our prayers we are sovereign, but when God is working, he stirs his people up to pray. You can look through the book of Acts and hear prior to the coming of the Spirit, here at the end of the chapter as they choose a replacement, or rather as the Lord chooses a replacement for Judas, as you see the witness to Jerusalem unfolding, as you see the gospel going to the Gentiles and to the household of Cornelius, each time in the same context we find prayer is what's taking place just before that amazing and great work of God. So prayer is where the action is, and all of the people are praying, all of them. There's not somebody who's doing their own will and just kind of grown disillusioned with the church. 
There's not somebody who's just kind of grown neglectful. There's an excitement and anticipation about what God is doing, and there's a prayerfulness about it. I think this passage helps us to see the importance of prayer. Someone has said prayer is the most powerful and effective means of service in the kingdom of God. It is what he had certainly appointed for them during this time. He wasn't saying, go wait at Jerusalem and twiddle your thumbs. They were there praying, praising God for what he had done, petitioning God to fulfill his promises. And as they pray, they're really finding their place among the people of God because God's people pray. God's people pray. Those who know God pray. In fact, that's the very first thing that they do. They call on the name of the Lord. And through the course of your life as a Christian, I just ask you, are you growing in prayer? Are you growing in your fellowship with God? And are you growing in your fellowship with other believers? When was the last time you prayed with a fellow believer? I'm not talking about the meal at your home, if you happen to pray with a fellow believer at home. When was the last time? I'm not talking about prayer meeting either. I'm just talking about praying with a fellow believer. When was the last time that took place? But when was the last time you participated in a prayer meeting? Well, there's a sense in which we had a prayer meeting this morning because we prayed. One of us is corporately representing our congregation to God, and we do pray to God. I'm sure prayer is taking place with the children downstairs and in our Christian life hour and so forth, and we will, by God's grace, pray tonight. But God's people do pray. That's part of the reason we have a prayer meeting. Because the purpose of that is to draw near to God and together with one another to seek God by prayer. And that's important. I like what one person said. He said, it's striking that at almost every important turning point in the narrative of God's redemptive action in Acts, we find a mention of prayer. God's at work. Prayer's where the action is. Something's going to happen here. Jesus has given them an anticipation for it. And in chapter two, we'll see the answer to those prayers and God working in ways that are amazing. But I want to just take a moment and consider that last few words at the end of verse 14 with his brothers. The women are there, they had been following Christ. Mary, the mother of Jesus, certainly pondered things in her heart about who her son was. There were things that she had to come to understand. I think it's right to say that here she finds her rightful place among the disciples of Jesus. In other words, Mary is not exalted here. She is said to be the mother of Jesus, but she finds her place among the disciples. This certainly isn't an elevation or an exaltation at all in the way that the Roman Catholic Church builds up inappropriately another sinner. Mary, yes, she was blessed to be the one who bore the Messiah, but she herself is not divine. She is not a mediatrix, as some have called her. 
She blessed among women, yes, in a sense that she was able to bear the Christ child, but that's as far as it goes. She doesn't deserve worship. She finds herself as a fellow sinner disciple here with the disciples, but then her sons. And I think that's the way to take when it says his brothers. There's some question about how close a relationship. But Lucas, certainly as he's named Jesus brothers or given an indication of his brothers, this is most likely those who are named in the Gospels as the ones who initially John chapter 7 rejected him, but now they have come to accept him and find themselves not in any way an equal. Yes, a brother, but disciples of Jesus. Matthew chapter 13 mentions Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. And in that context, those who are listening to Jesus teach say, Jesus is teaching, but don't we know his family? And they mention these names, but these brothers were not believing on Jesus, but something had taken place. God had gotten a hold of these individuals, and they'd come to confess Jesus as Lord. They'd come to repent and believe upon him. And I believe there's encouragement here for those who have family who do not believe yet on Jesus. Even Jesus in his own family had those who didn't believe on him. They did not recognize that he was the Messiah. They even saw his works or heard about his works and told him to go do his works and go up to the feast. They said at one point, and show yourself that this really is who you are, but they didn't believe on him. You might have a family member today who refuses to bow the knee to Jesus Christ, and that can weigh you down. And I want to encourage you to keep on praying. I want to encourage you to keep on sowing the word of God in their life. I want to keep, I want to encourage you to keep on loving them, keep on sharing the word with them. Because you don't know how God is going to work. Pastor John shared something with me this week that I thought was appropriate connection. I don't know if he's going to use it. If he uses it again, it'll be a blessing again to me. There's a sermon by J.C. Ryle where he made this point. He said, is it a comfortable and cheering thought that the same kind of thing that happened to the disciples is often going on in the present day? Sermons that are preached to apparently heedless ears in churches are not all lost and thrown away. The instruction that is given in schools and pastoral visits is not all wasted and forgotten. The texts that are taught by parents to children are not all taught in vain. There is often a resurrection of sermons and texts and instruction after an interval of many years. The good seed sometimes springs up after he that sowed it has been long dead and gone. And Ryle said, let preachers go on preaching and teachers go on teaching and parents go on training up the children in the way they should go. Let them sow the good seed of the Bible truth and faith and patience. Their labor is not in vain in the Lord. Their words are remembered far more than they think, and yet will spring up after many days. And I don't know what the interval of time was, but here are the brothers of Christ joining with the disciples. Those who had rejected him in his very family have now come to believe upon him. What a blessing. What an encouragement from just a few words. 
But if you look at what's taking place next in the life of the apostles here, they're preparing for the coming of the Spirit by means of prayer, continual prayer. They're also, someone described what's taking place in verses 15 through 26 as a completion of the apostolic company. As one other word is a reconstitution of the apostolic company. By reconstitution, it means that they're that what is happening here is a restoration to the original state. Turn over, if you would, to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. We find the list of the apostles in the different gospels, but here as Luke describes the scene as Jesus chose the twelve. Verse 12, Luke chapter 6 says it was at this time he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. There's 12. We understand even from Luke's writing there that he knew the rest of the story. Turn over to chapter 9. Look at verse 1. It says, And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And then he gives them instruction about how they're to do what, they're, what they do. But look at verse 6. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And it's they. Verse 10. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But it's really all of them together. It was a company that he had chosen. He had specifically chosen Judas in addition to the other 11. And did he know? Did he understand? Did I not choose you and one of you is a devil? Remember when he said that in the Gospel of John? That was right after a bunch of disciples had left him. And he knew that there was one more to leave him. But there were 12, and we call it the 12. And if you turn back to Acts chapter 1, it's that fact that there were 12 that becomes a part of the bigger picture of why Peter says that Judas needs to be replaced. Look at the language here, verse 15. At that time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons. And the word there for persons is, you might see in the margin, names. So it's not just a gathering of people, but they know the names of the people. These are, it's almost like someone said, it's almost like there's a registration. These are known disciples of Christ. They're followers of Christ. Their names are known. It's not just a random gathering of 120 people. 
And Peter argues, verse 16, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who had arrested Jesus or who arrested Jesus. What had taken place between the time of the apostles choosing and ministry was, of course, Judas apostasy, his betraying of Jesus, his guiding people. Notice Peter's language at the end of verse 16. It says, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus? Judas was not just an informant. The night that he left, when the rest of the disciples were eating, and Jesus relayed to John who it was who would betray him. He said to John, who's sitting near to him, it's the one who dips the sop with me. So John knew. He knew because Jesus told him, but Jesus was close to him. I don't think everybody knew that night when Judas was dismissed. Did they know what was taking place? I don't think it is evident until later on as to what exactly is going on. But that night, Judas goes and he, yes, gives them the knowledge of where Jesus was. But in addition to giving them the knowledge, Judas actually came with them to the garden when Jesus was going to be arrested. We know that in part because he came up to Jesus and literally betrayed him with a kiss. A sign of friendship, a sign of loyalty. But in that very moment, that was actually the signal to the chief priest, to the temple guard, to the soldiers who had come, that this is the one that you're to arrest. You can imagine that night. Jesus said, let's get up and get going. He went out to meet that company, but when they saw Judas, if they were able to in the darkness, did they even suspect then? Did they hear Jesus' words, friend, you've come to betray me with a kiss? What's my point? Nobody really knew. John only knew because Jesus pointed it out. Peter may have known because John told him. But there was an apostate in that company of apostles, and he had been with them all along. All along. I heard somebody preaching on this text, and they said, I don't know if we can take this in. I mean, think about what we read in Luke. This is someone who was doing miracles. This is someone whose God gave him the power to heal diseases. This is someone who is preaching the message of the gospel. And yet all along, this is not a true believer. Judas is a warning. The presence of Judas is a warning to us. Certainly make your calling and election sure. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Take care that there not be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief turning away from the living God. Is it possible that somebody could company with God's people, even become a member of a church and participate with them, but not have a true heart and at some point leave and depart and do something very evil as Judas did? Yes, 
Does it happen still? Yes, it does. And that's why we are to exhort one another daily. You're in the right place. You're in the place where the gospel is being preached, where Christ is being proclaimed. I'm not trying to stir up in in any uh, case inappropriate doubting or when you're lacking of assurance. I'm not trying to stir that up. But the reality is there are sometimes people who have come in among God's people and they're not true. They're false. And they're good at deceiving others. And you might say they could be even deceiving themselves. This is a warning, the presence of Judas among them. But what does Peter say here? He says this is actually a fulfillment of Scripture. And what is Scripture? He even defines what Scripture is. It's the Holy Spirit speaking by the mouth of a human writer, says which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas. David was the prophet. The Spirit was the one revealing. And Judas is identified there as the one who became a guide to rest of Jesus. He's going to give the scriptures down in verse 20, but notice what Peter says, verse 17, for he, Judas, was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. He was numbered among us. There was a specific number. Jesus had number 12. What was the share that Judas had? What portion did he have as the 12th apostle? Well, just just listen to this. What did Judas defect from? What did he turn away from? He turned away from the very Son of God, the source of salvation. He turned away to eternal damnation. But he also turned away from, look at what he turned away from. Turn over to Luke 22. Just keep a finger here. Look over at Luke 22. Because he did not believe, because he turned away, what did those apostles in that office receive from Christ? Look at what it says. The apostles are there with him. Jesus speaking here. He says in verse 28, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the apostles. That's the coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ in which there will be identifiable tribes. You can read that in Revelation. And over those tribes will be leaders and they will sit on thrones. And who are they? They are the 12 apostles. God is doing something amazing here as he sends Christ to come to Israel and choose 12 individuals who in the future will sit on thrones over the nation of Israel. This is a part of God's plan and purpose. Now, I want to be careful when I say this, but what is Jesus doing? He's constituting the nation by its leaders at this point. There are 
11, there needs to be 12. There are 12 thrones. One of those thrones before it was ever occupied was abdicated. It was a traitor. And the only ones who really and truly are in Jesus' kingdom are those who are true. But notice what it says. You will sit on, on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So I, as I've read and, and studied both this passage and early in the book of Acts and just listening to what people are saying as they write about this, it may be this very promise that is motivating Peter. It's not only this promise, because we know there are other scriptures that Peter mentions in the book of Acts, but what is motivating Peter and what, why Jesus chose 12 in the first place is that the people of God in Jesus' day, the Jews, had become corrupt. It was a wicked, adulterous, sinful generation that was not believing in God. They were hypocrites. And so Jesus is coming, and the leadership of that day is thoroughly corrupt. And essentially what he's doing is he's saying, new leadership, these 12, they believe in me, they're my witnesses, and they are going to be those who lead in my kingdom. It was really, and I think someone rightly said, it was a judgment on the current leadership that he would choose these 12 apostles. And eventually in the book of Acts, these apostles are becoming in Jerusalem, the true leaders. They're pointing the people to their true King Jesus. Now, the reason I said we have to be careful is I'm not trying to mix Israel here with the church. I'm not saying that Israel and the church are the same thing, but these are Israelites, these 12. And Jesus is obviously setting a foundation for that eschatological Israel, if I could put it that way, that Israel in the last days where those 12 apostles are going to be leading, but here they are witnesses to that kingdom. They're the ones who are going to be occupying those thrones, and by faith, that must have been quite a promise to believe and behold. Turn with you, if you would, back to Acts chapter 1. So what did Judas miss? says he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. That was going to be what he would have received, but he apostatized. He left, turned from Christ. And so there has to be a replacement. Now, that's not all that's said about Judas here. And you notice in the New American Standard, there's parentheses around verses 18 and 19. Why are there parentheses? Well, it seems as though what's taking place in these couple of verses is Peter is not continuing, but Luke is inserting parenthetical comment. Comment that explains what happened to Judas for the sake of the reader. One of the reasons that that's believed to be a, a parentheses is actually what you see at the end of verse 19. Because Luke says this, I'll read verse 19. It became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language, that field was called Hakeldama, that is the field of blood. Now, Peter spoke what language? You know, the language of the uh, apostles and Jesus and their earthly, yeah, it's Aramaic. Luke is writing in what language? 
He's writing in Greek. So if Peter is the one preaching and he's preaching to the disciples of Jesus, 120 persons gathered there together, would he need to explain an Aramaic term to them? Now, he might need to remind people of what that term means, but it was pretty obvious to a, a, a native speaker that Hakodama was a field of blood. A field's a very common word, so is blood. And so this appears to be Luke's explanation as to what had taken place, so that as Peter gives this argument, the reader has an understanding of what has taken place and understands why Peter's saying what he's saying. Okay, now what Luke tells us here is, is interesting, especially in light of what the Gospels reveal, because this man, verse 18, refers to Judas. And this man, it says, acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. The price of his wickedness is the price, of course, that he paid or that he was paid, rather, for betraying Jesus. 30 pieces of silver. Remember that? So he received that, and he bought a field. But you would say, wait a second, that doesn't seem to follow. And where is this found in the Gospels? Notice what it says. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. That's horrific. Gruesome. What a terrible way to die. And then that became known to everybody who was living in Jerusalem, and they called the field, the field that he had purchased, the field of blood. Okay? Does this make sense? Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 27. Let's just look at what is taking place here. Why is it called the field of blood? Matthew chapter 27, and if we're going to think rightly approach the scripture, we believe that God who has spoken speaks the truth. He always does. God doesn't contradict himself. Contradiction would mean that somehow he hasn't spoken the truth. No, we believe he does speak the truth, and even when there are passages that seem to conflict, we need to see how they actually complement. That takes some work. Verse 3, after Jesus has been arrested, it says, Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. Okay, so we, we at least have the price of his wickedness. We have the money in view. Judas, of course, is the one who betrayed Jesus. We have that by his confession here. But then we have him going away and hanging himself. So what happens to this money? And how does the field come into the picture? Look at verse 6. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, uh, treasury because, since it is the price of blood. All right, now we've got blood. It's the price of blood. Verse 7, and they conferred together, and with the money they bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. 
Now we've got a field. We've got somebody betrayed, got the price of their wickedness. Instead of taking that money into the temple treasury, verse 7 says, they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Whose name do you think that land got registered in? Well, they can't register it in Ananias' name, or Annas, rather, or Caiaphas. They can't register it in the name of a temple official. That's going to betray that they did something nefarious, something sinful, something wrong. So this money belongs to this person. We're going to buy this field, register it in his name. This becomes his property. Notice what it says, that they made it a burial place for strangers. It's a cemetery. It's not a place that you're exactly going to build a house. And then Matthew says, for that reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Now, the way that I take what Matthew is saying here and what it it says in the book of Acts is, in terms of the explanation for the field of blood, it kind of depended on who you were talking to as to why it was called the field of blood. And what did they know? When it became known to the apostles what had taken place, why is it called the field of blood? Well, because this was the blood money that had been paid for Jesus' death. But guess why else it's called the field of blood? Because the very one who betrayed him purchased the field. Some would believe that Judas actually hung himself in that place. And when he fell, his own blood spilled on that field. So it's a field of blood. Blood because of the betrayer, because his blood was shed. Blood because it was the blood money that bought it. This is really another testimony to the gruesome realities of what had taken place here. But now the public reputation that those actions had received. Turn back to Acts. In other words, why was it called the field of blood? Well, he purchased the field with that price of wickedness. Some would explain it this way, that the price of the wickedness had to do with the blood money, and that's why it was called the field of blood. But others take it as it was actually Judas's blood that was spilled there. And either way, it's the field of blood. Now, if that's a parenthetical comment, and it's, it's insightful, isn't it? And, and as you look at those two ways of explaining it, even if you get into the issue of the potter's field, we're not talking about contradiction. We're talking about something that complements. There are those who view Judas as actually having died in that field and for that, it becoming called the, uh, the field of blood. But however you take it, there's a complementary use of those passages. But Peter goes on to explain what the Holy Spirit said and why they needed to take the action that they took. And we're just going to conclude on this this point, this verse. Look at verse 20. He says, for it is written in the book of Psalms, 
let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it. Now that's in terms of quotation of scripture. Psalm 69, verse 25. The other text that's quoted here in verse 20 is from Psalm 109 and verse 8. So two texts that refer to the enemies of God's people who act in hostility and betrayal. And then there's a prayer of a curse that lands upon someone who would do such a thing. And Peter's arguing that that curse that's uttered actually falls on Judas. And the spirit is directing that someone should take his place. Okay, what's the curse? that no one would live in his land. It was a blessing to have land that was occupied and to pass it on to future generations. But in the case of this betrayer and murderer of the very king of Israel, that place is going to be desolate. No one's going to live there. And what better, what better way to ensure that than for that place to become a cemetery in God's providence? Who's going to build a house there? Peter says, and let another man take his office. He has fulfilled a part in a community that was part of the nation of Israel. Someone else needs to take that place. And that's what Peter is going to argue for as he sets the scriptural, I think the, the biblical qualifications for this new leader. And then they pray to the Lord. And of course, the lot falls to Matthias. I don't know all the applications word uh, the Spirit is going to give to the Word today, but I think there's there's plenty to consider, particularly with the reality of who Judas was and the wickedness of what he did, and the warnings from Scripture regarding possibility of apostasy even among the people of God. I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. But we are called to make our calling and election sure. We are to examine ourselves to see whether we're truly in the faith. Jesus is the king. Salvation only comes through faith and trust in him. Trust in him. Believe upon him. Follow him. Be loyal to him. Serve him. May the Lord help us. Let's pray. Lord, we bow before you. We do thank you that your word gives us light, understanding, gives wisdom to the naive and the simple. We're in need of that today. We're in need of your grace, the grace of your word. Lord, I don't know the hearts today. You know all the hearts Every single one of us, Lord, you see us and with the ability, Lord, to move past any of our own self-deception, any of the presentation we may make to others, and you know those who belong to you. You know your own children. And we pray, Lord, even for those of us who do know you, that we would not be troubled, but that we would act upon the admonition of Scripture 
to make our calling and election sure. But for those, Lord, who do not know you, and there is an evil heart of unbelief, there may be Christian seeming activity. There may even be language and speech that sounds like a Christian, but Lord, if there is no genuine faith, would you expose that? Would you open the eyes of that person that they might recognize that there is no true genuine faith, that they might put their trust in you? And we thank you, Lord, that you are merciful. We thank you that you're gracious, that you hear all who come to you in faith, that when they call upon your name, that you do save them from their sins if they call out truly. And we ask, Lord, for your grace. Be at work among us, Lord, shepherd your people, tend to your sheep today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.